When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. great it's really an honor to be here hey man like this has been a this episode been a long time making in the making bro like you have no idea how how long i wanted to get you on this platform bro like like for real bro it's um when when it comes to thinkers and people who 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 have that pursuit and knowledge like you definitely somebody who i look at as somebody who's like me in that aspect you know somebody who who really just wants to learn as much as they can. And um, I, I don't want to start the podcast off from like, from like a morbid perspective, but something that you said like a few months ago when you was at Trellis really made me think, okay, like this dude think like me, bro. Like you, you <laughs> was in the hallway and you was like, you was talking about how like in your group, you always kind of like the one who make jokes about like black people and stuff like that. Yeah. And, sure. and, and, and the joke that you said, it was like, it was like, What's your last name? <laughs> of course, yeah. And it was like, what's your last name? And as a black person, you know, most of our last names come from slavery. And I was like, damn, bro, this dude think just like <laughs> me, bro. Because that's because that that's the type of stuff I find funny, bro. Yeah, that's the type of stuff I find funny just just because I'm so like I'm so immersed in, into the into the craft and in the, the study of of black people, bro. And it just makes me um, it just makes me it makes me grateful to have have had more time to like talk to you this like in these past months like this past year bro because um i didn't really i don't really think i talked to you like like that before um likewise i had, I, I had really like i had interacted with you a little bit throughout our time at Howard, but not really like that um but the first thing i want to ask is <laughs> this podcast will be right if i didn't ask you this like what you been reading lately wow well first i'm just really happy to be here bro and it's been an honor to <laughs> get close to you this last semester really this last year um i really just been so honored to like know your hunger for knowledge and it's really inspired me bro so much for real definitely bro and so you know what i've been reading lately oh man so I've, I've been going back and forth between getting ready for coursework in the fall which won't be about my research primarily and then balancing that with my own research so um one i've been reading Black Marxism, Black Marxism by Cedric Robinson. I got that in mind. That's a book I want to read soon, bro. I want to read that this summer. Absolutely. And I think that's a foundational book for especially, especially Black people to understand capitalism in a different light, um, to understand the critiques of Marxism and what it means to, in reference to the Black struggle. 
And it also lays out, I mean, the history of capitalism, especially in reference to Marx, Germany, you know, other parts of the world, but also in reference to black America. Um, so that's the main book I'm reading right now. I'm also reading Slavery and Social Death okay. by Orlando Patterson. That's going to be the foundational text for um, Afro-pessimism, a lot of my research for grad school. Um, and that's really the, you know, the, the genealogy of slavery in the world. As we know, slavery is a global um, thing. It's, it's not simply a epidemic that's happened in America. It's all over the world um, historically. And so he's lining it up to really show us how humans can become objects. And so um, Orlando Patterson, um, then what else am I reading? I'm reading so much. Um, those are the main two books now. I've been reading uh, A Continental Philosophy Guide. Um, it's a going to be a genealogy of um, historical philosophers like Husserl or uh, Sartre or um, you know, um, Michel Foucault. And so lining up, you know, uh, continental philosophy to really understand what it means, what it is, and um, what it looks like for somebody going into philosophy today like yeah. me. What is continental philosophy? Yeah, so it's primarily two categories. There's analytic philosophy and there's continental. Yeah. Um, analytic philosophy is a very more, um, uh, it's kind of been its name, analytic. Um, you'll, you'll take an, an idea, it'll be very much more um, synthesizing of an argument very concretely. It'll be observing pretty much every word, every sentence, every line to um, have these big ideas, but you're bringing them down to be very, um, you know, cut and dry. Um, it's very... You know, I don't know how to describe it. It's very difficult to, to grasp if you're not trained in that area. Yeah. Now, I haven't been trained in that area primarily, and it's not my research. I more so work on the continental side. Continental philosophy is going to be more so um, thinker by thinker, right? We're going to have someone like Husserl, and we're going to think about his ideas, and we're going to you know bring them down to be in this minute form. We'll look at Kierkegaard, and we'll you know bring his ideas down. So it's much more of a um, country by country to dip tradition it's going to be much more of a um, time period tradition as yeah. opposed to something like analytic which can be much more topical much more you know analytic in, in its argument structure wait so it's the analytical side and what's the, what's the other side of it the continental side oh, like, like, more like the big picture idea okay kind of so like the which so one of the sides focuses on the history more like kind of like how we more got so. to these ideas absolutely and then the other one focuses on just what the ideas are I say they both focus on what the ideas are, yeah. but the analytic side is going to be much more specific in its like argument structure, much more specific in the way in which we'll discuss an issue. As opposed to a continental side, it'll bring more timely and relevant ideas to the table, and be much more timely idea, um, ideas that you know may be covered by one philosopher, mm -hmm. may be covered by a country tradition like Germany, um, and so you know those are much more. I say. Um, much more widespread as okay. opposed to something much more topical and very um you know cut and dry okay how is how has it been reading that book so far has it been difficult to grasp or yeah um so he, at howard i wasn't primarily trained too much in like you know traditional white philosophy bro i'm about to, I'm about to get that. oh for <laughs> sure yeah, we about, yeah, talk, talk. um and so for me i'm getting into that because emory is a very much a continental it's a, one of the best continental philosophy programs. Mm -hmm. And so it's really getting trained in, in these philosophers I've never read. I've heard about so much, and I'm somewhat familiar with their ideas, but actually reading their text to be able to bring to the classroom, haven't been trained in that area, so I'm training myself now. It's quite difficult. 
um, especially with some, some thinkers are harder than others. Um, I think I lean more towards like a Kierkegaard or like um, um, a Emmanuel Levinas. Okay. And we'll get into those those theorists as well. But someone like Heidegger, someone like Herschel, are philosophers that are more so on the continental side that you know are harder to grasp or may take me a little bit more reading to do, especially um, theorists that I may not agree with certain yeah. things. Okay, that's that's super interesting, bro. Like, I definitely wanted to focus on the topic of like your you being at Howard, learning a lot more about black philosophy as opposed to white philosophy. Um, I feel like this past week I was at Johns Hopkins, right, and I noticed it was like a seminar on racial politics for for I don't think I've said this on the podcast, but next year I'm going to be at Johns Hopkins as a pre-doctoral fellow. Absolutely, we're so proud of you, bro. Hey, man. I, I appreciate How to make it known on the podcast. <laughs> had to had to make it known. And I feel like this is the, the perfect episode for it. And um, I wanted to say that when I was there, I could really feel my difference as an HBCU student. Yeah. Because I was there. It was I met some, some dope people. And I noticed that some of them went, were like more, they thought about things from more like a, like a, oh, a, a black, a black person being looked at being looked at as a white person type of lens like i heard the phrase white gaze a yeah. few times which is valid you know how how our thoughts are looked at under the white gaze because you know thus white people and just white scholars are the primary um have the most power in all in all this and when you talk about all this stuff and it just made me think i me going to howard i think from a lot more of like a of a pro-black perspective like a how does this apply to black people? Yeah. How can we how can we be saved in the, in all this stuff? Um, I thought about how my I there were various authors who I who I brought up to them that they had no idea about for Auth- sure authors who were very influential in in black spaces and just an overall black thought and they had no idea, bro, like about the. Did you want some water, by the way? Oh no, I'm good. Thank okay, you. All right, good. Um, they they had no idea, and I'm like, damn! It made me so grateful because by by eventually going to grad school, I'm gonna learn about all those white scholars. But if I hadn't gone to a school like Howard, I would not have been exposed to these black scholars whose ideas are just as who has who's got whose ideas are just as good as the white ones. They just aren't aren't propped up as much. And I think like for for both of us, it's gonna it's gonna make our research a lot different. Absolutely. Like it's gonna make our research different, bro. Like for real. Like we, the sources that we'll be able to draw upon is going to be completely different, bro. Like in in my interview for the for the fellowship, I brought up uh, Amos Wilson. Yeah. And um, I yeah, I brought up Amos Wilson and how in in his book uh, the psychodynamics the psychodynamics of black annihilation in service of white domination. Very he, radical. <laughs> very radical. Very very radical. Very radical text. And he talked about how proximity to wealth increases crime within the black community mm. because a lot of the time these black people in hoods they're still in the city yeah so they're still exposed to wealth but they can't have it right because they're in the hood right but they're still able to see it so that makes them want it more yeah and in my interview I brought up how I, maybe I could study the how does social media affect that because now it's even heightened now instead of walking outside and seeing the wealth you seeing it in your home on your screen. How does that affect the crime that's going on? And I feel like that's a lens of perspective that is not focused on enough. And when, and then when I said it, 
they ate it up. But I know a lot of them might not have even known who Amos Wilson was because he, um, you know, he wasn't as influential in white spaces, which is perfectly fine. He he wasn't writing for white people. He was writing for black people. Absolutely. You know, when you, when you think of books like The Blueprint for Black Power, which I need to read, but that's just an example of like, he's he's writing for us. Sure. You know, and I, that's just something that I'm really, I'm really grateful for. And I, and I think I represented Howard and HBCU as well at the seminar. And I was really, I was, I didn't, I didn't hold back on some of the things I had to say, man. Like just speaking up for the black man and the things that we going through in this country that I feel like are so under, I wouldn't say undersold, but just not talked about enough. Oh, absolutely. And I think being at an HBCU, you know, it's just a certain level of intellectual prowess that will come out of these universities with that black students, even at PWIs, might not really understand. And yes, they may read a lot of black authors, but it's not authors that may be like, uh, like Amos Wilson or right. like a Ngugi Watiango reading like Decolonizing the Mind, right? Right. Or even, we were talking about Oliver C. Cox, right? It's these authors that might not really be out on the forefront of you know the media or well, everyday classroom. But it's going to be people like Dr. Joshua Myers is going to like sit us down in class and really walk us through these arguments and really these ideas that are, may, not, may not be celebrated in the class because we're not going to be the only black kids in a PWI classroom. Mm-hmm. So there's certain things you might not be able to say. And so being at HBCU, we put it all on the table. All on the table. Like no holding back. No holding back. And what made me, I think, really fall in love with philosophy at Howard is one of my first classes is with uh, Dr. Uh, well, I won't say his name for, for the podcast sake. But you, you can say the name if you want. Oh yeah, uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Patrick Gooden. And we were discussing about uh, Afro-Caribbean philosophy, and he, he he was saying the N word, and he just went through the genealogy of the N word. What does it mean to be Negro versus a nigger? What it means to be Black versus you know a, a Negro? And so it just these these sections off, you know, him being able to say the word, and in the class, and all of us looking at each other like like this is where I want to be, as opposed to did he just say that? You know? Exactly, it's it's a it's a different frame of thinking. Yeah, it's like for sure. it's like you. In a PWI classroom, if a, if a professor is saying that, even if he's black, students are going to, like, they might glance at you and think, think well, what, what are you thinking? When you're in a black space, it's like, you're not thinking about that. You're just thinking no. about the word that he said and what it means in the context that he's talking about it in. And, and it elevates the learning levels, right? It's, it's, it's more of a fast-paced environment because we all come to the classroom with a certain level of agreement of how the world is and exists. We believe, as black people, I can only speak for Howard, that racism is in the world and it exists. And it has this lasting effect that is for many people beyond you know human comprehension. And so we get in this classroom with this kind of agreement. We can move forward as opposed to being in the classroom arguing how bad was slavery or did it ha- happen in this certain context or who was most oppressed in society. Well, we already know who that is. And that's going to be black people. And when we get deeper than that, it's going to be black women. And so from there, we get to go on argument structures that are so you know fast-paced and beyond a simple argument in class about who's right or wrong. Exactly. So and that's something that I know leaving Howard I'll always appreciate and, you know, just be grateful for as I go into another white space. Facts, bro. I'm I'm that seminar I was at last week and trust me, bro, I was immensely grateful and had so much gratitude for Howard and now being outside of the environment, I really feel like I can I can appreciate it even more, bro, because it's um it's different. I can just tell. I just I think different. I I think I think like an HBCU student, like for real, bro. And, and I that's why I'm such a big advocate for Black people who are in the HBCUs and always. And it's it's really a, it's really a movement. You know, you see the numbers and rates going up of Black students going to PWIs at higher rates. And um, I think that 
we're starting to understand what how how powerful being in your own space is and how much that can resonate with you bro and, and there's a lot of moments where we might not ever get that again in, in, in this life you know mm-hmm. especially in america um you know, i was just thinking you know it, it's one thing to be pro-black in a, in a black space because it's a certain level of unity that you'll come out with it's really a family and it primes you and gets you ready for a white dominated society mm-hmm. and i always say hbcus teach you how to dominate white society PWIs teach you how to navigate it beautifully. Mm. And for me, I, I don't like... That's, that's, that's powerful. And for me, prior to college, or oh, I can speak for you as well, or pretty much anyone at Howard, we've all been black in America our whole lives. Mm-hmm. And so there's no more needing to navigate white society of, of knowledge that we need to know. We needed to know, I can speak for myself now, that how to dominate the society in certain areas, how to dominate in the classroom, how to dominate, you know, you know, in a, in a job space, right? Not just fit in and, and kind of be invisible and be okay with being invisible. How to be confident in this space. How to be confident and, and just dominate whatever you're doing and be absolutely excellent and let your blackness shine no matter what. And I'm just known, the friends I have at PWIs, the people I know at PWIs, you know, it's just this, it's this well, I don't mind being invisible because, you know, I, I don't have to... Um, I, I don't have to for whatever reason uh, I don't know it's really it's I don't like know. it's maybe it's like you don't mind being invisible because you're fine not having the attention being on you because you're black absolutely you, yeah. you can fit in the background and get your bag and you're ready for your job or whatever well, as opposed to well there's a higher standard we have to live live up to as black people in America we have to live up to the struggle right Yes, we may not have the best resources at HBCUs, but we know that coming in. We might not have the best housing, especially at Howard, but however, we know that this education is why we're here. This community is why we're here. That's why we're here. And so that's the kind of standard and sacrifice you have to make for your people. I mean, we're not fully free in this country. We're not free at all in this country. And for one to think that we are and think that we can have a better life from better resources, that to me is is a conundrum that we need to fix. And that's that's one of the biggest things. You talk about resources. Yeah. I always say, um, even after graduating, there was a lady who interviewed me, and uh, I, I advocated for HBCUs for, um, for, for black people, and I was like, the school like Howard might not have the best resources and everything like that. It's not going to have the prettiest buildings, the nicest libraries, even even the space that, that other bigger schools may have. But I said, but despite all that, these are some of the smartest people in the in the country. Like some of the smartest people, not even just black people, like people, period. Yeah. And I think that we we play so much it kinda of goes back into the whole aspect of Americans being so materialistic. We we play so much emphasis into the material things that we forget that this life is really all about people. And I'm not going to sit here and try to glamorize Howard, you know. They're, 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 there's a lot of things that they should be better, you know. Oh, like, for sure. Like, but that's with every school, you know. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of things that should be better. But I can say my experience here as a student is something that I will always be grateful for. Because even for me, being a political science major at Howard, coming in, being at the Johns Hopkins seminar last week, I was able to see that how, how a lot of my colleagues learn political science was through a white lens, mm. and they hated it. Mm. And some of them, one of them, even switched their major in undergrad because they they didn't they didn't like it. Just didn't seem like it was for them. But when I think of my in my time at my at Howard as a political science major, most of the classes that we had dealt with race 
in some way because race and politics are, are intertwined at the very beginning. This country was built on race. It's foundational. Yeah. That's what Cedric, Cedric Robinson would argue, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's foundational in the making of this country. And in, in turn with that, politics, something that has been here since the inception of this country, race is going to be a big part of that. And for a lot of white scholars to just kind of ignore that is something that I didn't have to experience being at Howard. Since day one, Dr. Uh, I'm not even going to mess up her name, so I'm not going to say her name. But <laughs> no, Jalon McAllister, like, first thing we just talked about was race in, in our classes. And I didn't even think about it at the time. I just thought, okay, this is political science. This is this is public policy, race and public policy, all right. of that. Like, but we're learning from a black perspective and a black lens. And now I'm coming into these white spaces and I'm looking at this stuff completely differently. Yeah. From 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 not only just a more of a, a a different knowledge base, a different experience base, and a different pride base. Yeah. Like everybody could tell I was prideful as hell. Every time I introduced myself, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a recent Howard, I'm a recent graduate of Howard University. Like, like I was just just straight up like, and um, and the age of the HBCU instilled so much pride in me, and I think that PWI students. PWI black students don't understand how you, you only understand HBCU until you actually come through it. And I wouldn't have if I went to a PWI, I wouldn't have not, I would not have understood. I wouldn't have even known that I missed out on this experience. No, or or to what extent that it could have affected me. Exactly. I think um, so. In in March, I I did an accepting students day kind of tour of, of Emory, and one thing I noticed was. You know, there were black people in the program, and I sat in on some seminars, and they were like three hours each. I was like, man, this is different. But um, <laughs> That's how it would be, bro. Yeah. What I realized, though, is that they all worked primarily on the same thing. It was a traditional philosophy that dealt with these white scholars that we've kind of heard about but never really cared to you know, read. Um, I can only speak for myself in that matter, but when I would speak with my scholars, I mean, just completely oblivious. And they were familiar, very familiar with Afro-Palestinism. But beyond that, you know, they, they would know the, the larger black scholars, maybe Du Bois, but they wouldn't know like Oliver C. Cox. And yeah. I think for me, I think we have to do a double time, though, you and I, Josiah, is that we have to know our stuff and their stuff. Exactly. So we have to be a master of, of both traits. You have to be able to be a master of both. That's and it would, it would make us better scholars as opposed to them primarily only looking at theirs and wanting to know a little bit of ours but not knowing the tradition because it's a black radical tradition mm -hmm. radical tradition that they won't have the motivation to, to learn about not even like they don't even have the motivation to even want sure. to do it which is why they won't be able to get immersed into it because they're not sure. really they'll look at it as like okay like i can learn about this stuff a little bit but it's not gonna it's yeah. not what quote-unquote matters oh for sure so they're not gonna look into it like that for sure it's um that stuff is so um so interesting bro because and, you know, we brought up like Oliver Cox. Uh, I asked a few of my friends when I was at Johns Hopkins if y'all heard of him, and they was like, "Nah, I never heard of him." And I'm sitting here reading a uh, cast class and race right now by him, bro. And it's like, this dude, this dude, man, he, he legit, bro. I'm excited for you to eventually read it, bro. Cause oh, for sure, definitely, um, definitely legit. And it made me kind of think of Afro pessimism from the standpoint of like, we, from from what I researched. It seems like Afro. Correct me if I'm wrong. Afro pessimism is like the 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 view that black people will not be looked at any differently 
than we that we were looked at during slavery, and that it's the it's pretty much the same thing now. And when I was reading that book yesterday, something that some of the profound statement that he made was that black people in this country, we are always going to be looked at. Mm. We are always going to be um, the primary labor class. That is our role. Whether it's paid or unpaid, we're going to be the primary labor class. And we're, we're always going to be looked at from that standpoint. And he, he, he predicted in that book the, the increased urbanization of, of the Negroes in the 1940s. And as we saw about the second grade migration, you know, a lot of black people moved to the cities because that's where work was. And um, it just and it made me think of we're always going to be looked at through, through the lens of, of how can we assist hmm. another group get to where they need to go even even as you know when you like like when you think of black male unemployment rates dropping that does not mean they are not performing labor yeah because they end in prisons yeah doing free labor yeah you know and that's something that we need to also look at you know we, we need to look at this perspective from all all angles and just from the, i feel like a lot of black men in prison are that that's a whole sector of the population that is forgotten um, oh, for sure. I was talking to my one homie, and he was talking about how like it's like a well-known fact in academia. It's like unspoken fact that you can't like surveys on black men are like you can't really do them. There's a whole swath of the population. Wow, that is incarcerated. Yeah, and it's um, it's 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 really it's really deep, and it's just very interesting now um, where things are going. I I really wonder as like a lot more immigrant groups come in, like where does that kind of where does that kind of play a role into black people as a labor class yeah, yeah. well uh, two parts I quickly want to jump on like black men incarceration rates yeah, yeah, right yeah. I think oftentimes people don't think about it M- maybe they do or maybe they don't it's really a reproductive rights issue yeah I mean for the past 30 40 years and they, our, they don't talk about it like that oh absolutely our our population our our 13% of being black people in America has not increased whatsoever and you know that's a large part due to the incarceration rates of black men highest rate of people incarcerated well they're not ha- in their in their childbearing years could say maybe um 18 to i don't know 60 maybe mm-hmm. um a lot of a lot of them are incarcerated and so in the prime years you would have children build families and build generational wealth for your family well that's cut and and, and, and reduced right and so now we have just a tiny population of black men able to do this and we you know the presumption for a lot of people in america this is the the liberalism that I really denounce it's this well there's more black faces in, in high places right things have gotten better and we have this small percentage of black people black men able to do certain things like Obama what's what have you but more and more we have these black men in masses going to prisons and this childbearing reduction rates you know is just being so far reduced and to me that's the issue to not really talk about uh, and and your, your second point that you brought up, if you remind me, um, was it the was it the labor? Or labor. Oh, oh, you, you mentioned uh, immigrant groups coming yeah. in. And so for me, I think there's there we all know this big narrative that Black Americans are lazy, we don't like to work, or um, that we're less intelligent, what to have you. And that's something primarily that I hear from immigrants and Black immigrants coming over from the Caribbean or from mm. the continent other parts of the world, the diaspora. And it really hurts me because 
you know, for the history of America, we've been the labor class, the class to build this country. We're in D.C. We built the White House. We built the Capitol. I mean, we built oh, all these roads. Everything that like like people uh, people think this stuff just sprung up out of nowhere. Like, who were here? The white people who were wealthy, and obviously the the poor white people. But they had a whole nother. That's a whole nother conversation. But you had a, we were the largest minority group. We were the largest group of people outside of white people in this country. And at one time, we outnumbered white people in this country. So during this entire 300-year history of this newfound land, quote-unquote, of America, we were the labor class building everything that we see. What that it has transformed into is that as more immigrant groups come in, they have this American dream. It's this quote or this idea that, well, if I just work till my eyes bleed out and I came here to this country with not even a toothpick in my pocket, well, I'm able to make something of myself. So why can't you black Americans do it? And this kind of has really been the thing that's put this fire on, under under my feet about getting into Afro pessimism and really understanding the lasting 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 biological and social systemic effects of slavery in America. And this can be talked about in the diaspora as well. But how does a people who have been quote unquote been released from slavery since eighteen eight from the eighteen hundreds eighteen sixty five eighteen sixty five from the eighteen hundreds and to say, well, you know, now you all are free from your shackles. Why aren't you able to make a life for yourselves? Well, there's a, a big gap between people coming in free of this systemic oppression that and, and historical capitalism that has affected them. They're just coming in now. People coming in 2023, and they're able to create a, a business for themselves and you know work for their families, and we're not able to do so. Well, you have to understand the history of America to really understand that narrative that we have and the narrative of immigrants are the hardest working people in America. And in large part, m many of them are, but it's this freedom and privilege that they would have, and many people don't like to talk about that, of just coming into America now, as opposed to coming in 300, 300 400 years ago. And so, you know, this is why I think Afro-pessimism lights a fire under me, because I get to analyze and go to the roots of why are black Americans so abject to every human being in the world? Right. It's um you you saying that makes me think about how we're black people are always kinda of used as like uh Amos Wilson talked about this um in, in the black on black book. He was talking about how like we are looked at we are needed in this country to to give like a comparison to, to white people. Mm. So so white people and other races can look at us and be like, Okay, we're doing something right. It kind of it keeps the whole social order going as long as you have something to compare yourself to. You know, white people can look at us and be like, okay, like, I'm, I might not be, I might be doing the best, but at least I'm not black. Um, like, we're just, just looking at black people in the hood and having something to compare yourself to. And then you get other immigrant groups who come in here and they're like, oh my God, like, look at the black people. They're, they're not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And it makes, it makes them feel better. And they aspire for whiteness more. And we're always kind of looked at as, like they they looked at us as, as like less less than human, bro. Like um, I thought about something like one of my friends was one of one of my somebody somebody from my homie's neighborhood was killed recently, and and he was a star basketball player, and and I noticed how in articles about him there was so much like they really tried to stress in the article how good of a student he was, mm. how good his grades were, and that made me think like like when I'm. Black man gets killed, like they really have to stress that stuff. 
Because if they don't stress how good he was academically, or as good as how good he was as a not barely as a person, people don't care. If they don't stress that stuff, they're gonna look at him and be like, okay, why did he get killed? Was he in the streets? And then when you say that, instant dehumanization. Instant he deserved it. I think that he deserved it. They deserved it. It's always primordial, right? It's like we're marked for, from the beginning. It's like almost like uh, from the beginning of time, we're marked as, um, what I mentioned earlier, abject. Being abject, you know, is, is an Afro-Pessimist term, which really means that you're deplorable, that you lack any pride or dignity. And it opens up the opportunity for anyone to label you as anything. And when you're killed, when you're assassinated, you're murdered, well, it's an idea of, well, it had to be a reason. It had to be a reason that their death was premature. It had to be a reason. And it was a reason that they played a big part into. And it's really so dehumanizing to the point that, you know, you just you just look at death as something that is expected to be premature for black people. And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry to hear about that, about your friend. Yeah, bro, it's, it's, just, it's just horrible because we, like, instantly were always looked at as something that's it's, it's less than human, bro. And it's like, even throughout all, like, all the police shootings, like, the first thing people ask, like, what, what, what was he doing? Right. What was he doing? Like, a lot of the time, like, a lot of it, what, if, if he was doing something, that is not worth the death. Yeah. This, this is oftentimes not worth the death, bro. And people, a dude, might, a dude might have stole something and he got shot. Yeah. And it's like. Or, you know, someone, um, you know, someone had a, had a false what, lottery ticket or a, yeah. a false something and, you know, they're the beginning of an entire, you know, social movement like George Floyd. And mm-hmm. so for me, you take some, as such a small matter and, you know, that's why, you know, Marcel Alexander really beautifully lines this up to say that, well, whether there's crime happening or not in, in America, you know, the incarceration rates are going to go up. Well, I would argue as well, whether crime is happening or not, you know, the death rates for black Americans are going to go up as well. You know, this um, murder of black people in the streets for no reason whatsoever. It's that even us breathing and sitting still is a crime against humanity. You know, when I'm walking into stores, and oftentimes I always see white people staring at me or, you know, I'll see, I'll see them, you know, looking around like, and they look at me like, oh, you're really free. Like you really, uh, you really don't have chains on you. And it may, that's that may sound radical or like, what? Nobody's thinking that. I would argue that they really do. And I, I think that's something that has never changed since slavery, right? The times may have changed. The date may have changed, right? Certain how laws. How they think about it may change. How they, and, and, and a lot of that stays the same though, the way they think about us, you know? Um, Oftentimes, I look at pictures of you know black people who are hanging on trees, and you have little five and ten year old girls in little dresses watching these dead bodies and smiling. How how can human beings and the way we we, we view children now is, is so you know precious and oh they're five and ten we we can't even let them learn about you know history in school, but we can let a five year old daughter look at a hanging black body from a tree blood all over them and they, they can laugh and smile and so for me this is the country that we're in and until we figure out that root of the problem the belly of the beast we're gonna you know, have these these uh this gratuitous death of black people continuously bro i've never thought about it like that before the whole our children can't learn this but they can look at a, at a, at a black man hanging and laugh and, and smile and laugh and smile and like 
and collect his bones after. Yeah. Like selling them in the store, like like it's fucking like it's like it's a collector's item. That's what we discussed in class. You yeah, know, the knuckles. Of, Sam Hose, a former slave. Which I actually learned in ruling with Sam Wilkes. Sam I Wilkes. learned that last week. I don't know. In a, in a store to be bought and sold or even just to be gawked at right to be viewed for me it's, it's it shows the barbarianism and the and the irrationality of racism it's something that is completely irrational and illogical and oftentimes for black people we've always brought rationality and logic to negate racism or hatred but when you have an irrational um, concept such as racism hatred you have to also um, Fight this with irrational and illogical forms of love, irrational forms of knowledge, and so for me, the research, I, a lot of research that I do is looking at maybe irrational or illogical forms of, of, you know, frameworks or concepts and models to to negate this form of like slavery or or um, racism, and so we have to start looking at everything in America as illogical and irrational in terms of race and hatred. How could you combat that irrationality of racism with a different type of rationality? Irrationality. How does that? How does something that? How is that something that you could do? You know, I'm sitting here. I'm looking at all all your books that you have. This is like true scholarship and research by Black authors. And you know, when you're presenting this research, obviously these are books written for Black people. But if we were to say, let's say these books were written for America, for white people, or non-Black people in America, it would be books to deaf ears, books to dead eyes, right? Um, and and it, talking to a brick wall. For me, I, I think you have to meet their logic. You have, you have to meet their logic. And so you have to create models or for research that takes their logic and duplicates it in a way that it almost like um, circumvents what they're trying to, to argue for, right? Um, and, and so for me, it, it's looking at, um, it's, it's looking at slavery. And that's why I make a lot of the jokes that I do. Right, I'm like, what's your last name? Oh, you know, it's, it's Johnson. Oh, of course, you know, just slavery. And everybody starts laughing. Well, it's kind of like humor that you bring into the concept, bring into, bring into the conversation for white people. Well, you're already thinking these things as white people, but you don't want to say that. I'm going to present this humor or this research, these models to you as a way of saying, we know the game that y'all are playing, and we can play the game too. We can do your, your irrationality, y'all not using logic in your argument structures. We, we can do that as well. But it's to show you that how far off y'all really are. Right. So no like specific models or research that I think at the moment, but it's kind of taking their approach and, and, and circumventing what they try to do to us. Man, that's, that's deep, bro. Like, man, it makes me think, what, what got you into Afro-pessimism? Yeah. I think um, if, to answer that, I have to go into what got me into philosophy. I think uh, two parts. I think one, growing up, I was an only child, and so I would just be in rooms by myself, and I didn't have anybody to talk to about like big issues. So if I watched a TV show or read something and I had big questions, all I could do is just sit in my room and think about it. Second part is I was super, super poor growing up, and I really was really angry about my poverty. I didn't know why. I didn't have the language um, to, to add to my situation. And so getting into philosophy, I think it provided me like this, the logic and it provided me the, the language to really understand what I was going through. And I realized it's not me, it's all black people. And I thought also, and this is where Afro-pessimism comes in, there's something that we're all missing. 
Like every day I see the news, we're arguing about the same things, right? Like politics, black people, mass incarceration. And it's just back and forth. And I think Afro-pessimism for me is like finally something radical enough, something that is non-compromising. Like it's non-compromisable. We're not gonna sit up here and talk about the effects of black people in slavery in America and, and have a, it, it's, it's too deep to have a conversation with with someone and say, well, how bad was slavery? You're not gonna leave that conversation contemplating or arguing if we, this should be taught in schools or not. Like this is something that goes to the root of what black people have suffered. And I always thought the black issue in, in America, but also the world, it's not a, a black white issue. It's a black non-black issue, right? That black people are facing a global form of oppression that is because we're not adjacent to whiteness. We're antithetical to whiteness. And so with that, like you said mentioned earlier, we're always being compared to the global power structure. Mm -hmm. What's the global power structure? Whiteness. We're facing the white diaspora. We're in America, this is the white diaspora, and, and we're facing a form of, of hatred that is black, non-black. That is the schema. And so for me, Afro-pessimism provided me these theories, this framework to really know, well, if we're starting here, it's... It's an infinite, for me, an infinite framework to see where, where, we, where we can go. It's not, I don't, there's not many limitations, I think, for me. Yeah. And a lot of people think that it's, you know, it's very nihilistic or it's like pessimist, too pessimistic. But for me, we have to see the situation as pessimistic before we can be more, in terms of black people to black people. Because it, it is pessimistic about black people's um growth or progression in society in a white dominated society mm -hmm. that's the pessimistic part but it doesn't mention specifically what we are as black people how we relate to one another and that's for me open interpretation for me to take and say hey there's no limitation to what i can think about for black people and where we can, where we can go together mm. that's the distinction that's 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 very deep in like as i was doing research about afro pessimism before this podcast like I would, a lot of people will look at it as is as if um it's very it's a very like pessimistic overall yeah for black people as if we have no hope but it seems like in afro pessimism the pessimism comes from the 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 historical along with the current position of black people in society and in and how pessimistic it is because there there is a, like there's a lot of pessimism yeah that 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 exists within within just when you for for me personally I've, as I've learned a lot more about about black people and the atrocities that have done that, that have been done to us historically, but also currently, it, it can make you very like pessimistic about. And it should. Uh, it, it like it's it's not supposed to make you feel like it's not supposed to make you feel like there are better things ahead. But at the same time, I say like coupled with my Howard experience, it has made me hopeful. Yeah. Because I can take that this Howard experience and be like, this experience I had right here, I will spend the rest of my life trying to recreate something. Yeah, it literally, and I think for me, you know, we we all know Alafia, you know, one of my best friends. He hates the the pessimistic part of Afro pessimism, and he was always say, "Yeah, the Afro Black people and pessimism means no hope." And for me, well, we, you have to read between the lines, and you have to really read so analytically to know what that might mean. Like we were mentioning, you know, in a white society, for me, it's always been idiotic to. Being a, being a black a, a white society as a black person and say well if I just get under there's always myths 
if I go to white school, I'll have more resources and have a better life. You know, whether that's true or not, for the most part, I think for your social position as a black person, that's a myth, right? That you'll get to a spot and you'll finally be looked at as good enough, smart <laughs> enough, adequate enough. They'll always look at you as like you're, you're less than. And my family always taught me that. You can be as eloquent as you can. You can be the best of whatever. They're always going to see you as a nigga. You're still a nigga. Like, never going to change. And so for me, I think the pessimistic part is really just being realistic. Like, can we be real about our social position as black people? Like, and that's the thing. People are afraid to be real, bro. Yeah. Because, like, sometimes my friends have labeled me pessimistic when it comes to, like, a lot of the things that, that I learned studying. I don't, I don't, it, it is pessimism, but I don't look at it as pessimism because of when people talk to me like this, I'm the most positive, uplifting person ever. Yeah. But and I don't, yeah. I don't carry that pessimism into my life. But if you want to understand these situations, you have to understand that if if you want if if you want things to be better, we have to have the we have to have the solid framework right here that things are not good now. They 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 are not good now. Now that's why I believe we as black people we fail to do. Adequately, adequately enough collectively. Facts. We, ha I, I we have our scholars that have noted this, right? We're talking about the scholars now, but they're far and they're in far and in between. But for the large part, we're saying this is where liberalism has destroyed Black people in this country. It's this idea that you know we're okay to like have small incrementations towards you know freedom or liberation, quote unquote. And for me, giving white people that opportunity to say hey black people we're going to give you a vice president y'all good with that y'all are cool before that we'll give you a president y'all cool with these faces cool we'll get you more representation in the media or you know movies whatever y'all cool with that and we're like yeah and for me it's like we believe those faces are going to liberate us this is almost like the fallacy of you know the talent of 10 we have to see our situation and say hey we are we are objects we are socially dead we are socially dead for example, George Floyd, he was already socially dead before he was assassinated. Then he was physically dead, as we all know. But in the eyes of non-black people, we are socially dead, which means, and there's three three understandings and constituents of what that means. We're open, yeah, explain that. And, and let's analyze George Floyd's situation here. Okay. We're open to gratuitous violence, right? Gratuitous means that it's unwarranted. And it gives, and it provides no benefit to the person per, giving out that that violence that we can kill you but it really doesn't give me any benefit my it doesn't elevate my social status it doesn't give me a billion dollars but that violence towards you as a black person is unwarranted i just wanted to do it because i just I, I don't like you but i don't know i don't know why there's no really like like glory behind that secondly we're natally alien alienated i, I believe when george floyd was being murdered he, he was crying out for his mother well and what natal alien alienation means is that you you we're born to a family, but it's not binding. There's no, there's no legitimacy to you having a family. You don't have a family. That's what it means. You as a black person, with this is back to slavery, when we were born to our mothers, we, we could be 100% taken that same second by the master the and killed or, 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 or shot or whatever, or heads ripped off. Or we could be sold just to a, a, another plantation. That means, our families meant nothing to the other, right? So him crying out, George Floyd crying out to his mother meant nothing. Lastly, we're just open to general dishonor. As we know, many people tried to, you know, taint George Floyd's name after the fact. We're saying, well, he, you know, 
he was a bad person, he did this, he committed a crime, all this, all this. Trying to rationalize it. You're trying to rationalize the, the assassination. That's the general dishonor. When you put these three things together, him, he was already marked from the beginning. And entering that situation, we're marked from the beginning. Entering a situation like that as socially dead people, we can easily become physically dead. And that's why a black person hanging from a tree and a five to 10 year old girl looking at that and smiling, it's just this transference from social, socially deadness to a, a physically deadness that doesn't require much for white people to, to, to view us. And yeah. so I think that's an important dichotomy to really understand. It, it is is super important. And it's really deep, bro. Like, I think um, I thought about this the other day. I think I mentioned this on the podcast, bro. When I, uh, I saw an Instagram post. And I think it kind of points to how a lot of this stuff can even apply within our own race. Like, yeah. I saw this Instagram post and it was a black dude, a firefighter. And my first instinct when I saw the post was like, oh, what happened now? But the post was really just like, a, when I read the caption, it was just like a, a congratulatory post of him like graduating or some shit like that. And then I was like, damn, like, we, how, okay, me, t- me talking about this makes me think, how do you think social media kind of plays into the whole aspect of us being socially dead? Because now we, our deaths are broadcast online for everybody to see towards something that a lot of people are used to seeing. People are desensitized to police shootings now. Yeah. It's not, people don't look at it as like, it's a big deal. It's kind of, oh, it's, it's just America. Another black person getting killed. That's, that's how it is. You're absolutely right. And that, to me, is the part of the general dishonor um, that our black lives, um, as physical entities, really don't mean much. Um, even um, the book uh, Between the World and Me, I mean, you know, the opening pages, the opening paragraphs is, is, our, is our fellow bison, Tanisha Coates, writing you know, about his black body. He kept talking about the black body. You know, it's, it's, it, it, he doesn't know when the black body, his black body can be taken or destroyed or, or um, killed. It's just the black body is so fragile, it's vulnerable. And I think that being televised was two parts. One, it destroys the, the black psyche. Like, I'm looking at this and I'm depressed because I'm like, wow, I could die at any moment. And millions of black people are thinking the same thing. You know, we're looking at ourselves not wanting to be black. That's where a lot of black self-hatred can come in. Then you have the non-black side. Well, you're rationalizing everything. You rationalize every act of of violence against black people. Everything. Well, you know, they were out partying. That's why they killed. Or that's why they got killed. Or they should have been studying. Or they, they weren't in college. They had a job. They should have been in college. It wouldn't have happened. It's always this, like... Irrational rationalizing, if that makes sense. Irrational rationalizing. Irrational I mean, pu- you're literally pulling like your opinions out of nowhere to rationalize something that should have never happened. Because it makes you feel good. It, it makes your psyche feel good. It makes you feel like you're you're still like just the benevolent ruler of, of the society, you know? Like, and I believe that is the number one fact of America from our inception the quote-unquote founding fathers it's this irrational rationalizing of why we you know we murder and we have this genocide of native native indigenous people in this country we move them to you know certain parts of oklahoma we'll say hey this is your your your, your land we're gonna we just need this we need this like your land to you know take over and, and to start a new land trail right of tears the trail of tears manifest destiny all and, like everything slavery in this country well you know where we have we, we this is the economic engine of the country 
right? We have, you know, cotton, but we need like production from it. And we need clothing from it. We need all these things from it. Well, it's rationalizing it. Then to say that, you know, even scientific racism, that the black being is just genetically inadequate. Irrational, irrationally rationalizing something that doesn't make any sense. And that's the thing, like, in that in the 1700s when a lot of these ideas came forth, white people knew what they were doing was evil. Yeah. Like, they they knew the transatlantic trade, the slave trade was, was, was evil. They knew how they was treating black people was evil. But as the mind always does, you have to rationalize what Everything. you're doing and why you're doing it. So if you can rationalize that, okay, I'm this black person is a slave because he is not even a person, he is just a genderless being, yep. then then you can continue however you can continue your institution as long as you want and reap all the benefits that you can reap from it. Like, um, I was reading this book, it was saying that black people during slavery, we were looked at as genderless beings. Yeah. Like genderless. The only the only difference between the man and the woman was that they could rape the woman and they and they still raped the men. The only difference was, was that the woman was able to have a child. That was the only difference. Other than that, we was treated the exact same way. For me, kind of lost, kind of my train of thought. You know, I, I, I started going through this this rabbit hole of, of yeah, me too. Be, being being two thirds a person, but you know, it, 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 for me, I, I this irrational rationalizing for me, I think it's going to be the that that's the part of the the non logic that I think black people have. We have to try to negate. So we have to meet that where it is. And a lot of these things don't even make sense. Like, they're not biologically accurate. We have these white people who say, well, you know, I believe in science and all these things. Well, if you believe in science, you'll know that race is made up, that, you know, to ascribe visual distinction markers, well, there's different colors in people. Yes, we can, that's a visual distinction marker. But to ascribe social and biological um, uh, categories to this visual distinction marker, it doesn't follow science. And you know that to me is what we're facing every day. And so when I'm writing, I, I hope that I'm when I'm, I'm thinking, I, I hope that I'm attacking that issue. Um, and, and there was a certain thing that you brought up that I want to hit on earlier. I can't, can't remember it though. Was it? Um, I said a lot. Um, what was it? Um, we can come back to it. Yeah, we yeah can come, probably come back to it. Yeah, and but there was something else I was thinking about earlier. I, I said this when I was at Hopkins, I was like, black people, we, for the past 60 years, when it comes to voting for the Democratic Party and just our political behavior, our behavior, period, we are complacent as a race. And I kind of, you, you, you said something about Kamala Harris and just her being vice president that mm -hmm. made me think, mm -hmm. her being the vice president and her going to Howard, it really gave a lot of unnecessary satisfaction for the black middle class. Yeah. Especially the, now I wouldn't say the black middle class, I'd say like the black bourgeois class. You know, all these Howard girls, they be, and it's, I don't blame them, they're, they're not as read up on this stuff, and they don't sure. understand it the same way, but, you know, the celebra the celebration of Kamala and everything that mm -hmm. she's quote unquote doing for us, like the representation, which I think representation is cool from the standpoint of like, you know, like black kids and black people can see this stuff and be like, oh, I can aspire to to be great I'm seeing this person beautiful yeah, thing it, it is a beautiful thing and all the representation in movies I think that's the biggest thing the biggest takeaway the biggest positive takeaway that I can take away from um, all the representation but what I'm trying to say is that we are too complacent yeah. in this country about our social standing 
in how things really are. Because I feel like if we if we were realistic about the situation that we faced, then then we would there there would be a lot more movement and a lot more pressure because you think of things like Black Lives Matter, it's like, yeah, like we mobilized for for a few months, but it's been three years since then. Like, yeah. You know? Like what's what are are we thinking differently or are we just kind of just going about it? Because at the same time, I understand that not everybody has the time and resources to think about this stuff a lot. So we're just going to move on. But something that I want to recreate for the black community is that is that 1960s, early 70s type of like that, that, that radical thought and philosophy, yep. which, was, which was pretty general amongst, which seems like it was pretty general amongst the black population in that time period. Like there were so many political organizations, so many organizations that were that were geared towards trying to liberate black people, and they had their differences and stuff like that. But the the end goal was the same. They want black people to be free, mm-hmm. and I think that that's something that is hard to recreate. Cause how do you get people to care when they're satisfied? Mm. You know, how can you be satisfied with? Not even the bare minimum, right? Um, that's the brainwashing that we have in, in, in this country. But also in the Caribbean. Um, I mean, France Fanon writes about that beautifully, that you know, the black people in, in, in Martinique, where he's from, well, they aspired to be white. You know, because we, although they were black, they were colonized by France, and, Fran- and le- learning French, for example, he, st- he started with language describing the, that epidemic. As black people in Martinique started reading and speaking more in French, they felt that they were in better proximity to whiteness. Mm-hmm. And, it, and that, one, it, I think language is going to be the first barrier that changes the culture and that it destroys the society. But then you go into wanting a partner that's not black, or you wanting a partner first that's lighter skinned, then moving into a partner that's not black. And, you know, it's, it's all these epidemics that come with that white brainwashing. And so I, I think we have to, I think, rethink blackness and whiteness not being simply colors but being consciousnesses or mindsets right once you realize that it's that way every black person that's born you're not like oh they're black because of their color well they're black from a mindset it's both a color and a mindset it's not just one or the other right and to look the way we do we have to have a certain mindset and so seeing someone like Kamala you would say that's great but there's a certain mindset that she should have being in office, as well as me praising her, right? It should be from a certain standpoint of, I know what she's in there doing. She's fighting for black people every day. She's a black person with this mindset. When we think about it that way, whiteness is a mindset. The issue is not white people being white. And I want the podcast to know that. It's not me on this podcast saying all white people are, are terrible. It's to say the, I, the belief in the idea that you're white. That encompasses a whole myriad of transgressions and and terrors that's happened in this you know in this world, right? It's believe I'm white. Wait, I'm white, so I'm different. Wait, I'm different, so I'm better. Wait, and it's all this. You know, the Bible says I need to I need to, to dominate the, the earth and subdue it, and you you misinterpret everything. I mean, this is where um, Charles Mills, philosopher Charles Mills, says it's the epistemology of ignorance. You're you are cognitively disabled, and your brain structure it it changes because you're saying. Everything in the universe, I have to meta- metaphysically view differently. You know, metaphys- metaphysics is going to ask questions of what exists, what's real in the universe. 
And when you're in this epistemology of ignorance, for example, you're going to say, well, you know, is this a table? Well, I don't know. You know, is that a black person or is that a, a slave? I don't know. My brain sees it, you know, one and the same. These kind of ideas that may sound like incredibly, you know, redundant or, or, or ignorant, but this is how the irrational rationalizing that, you know, we're discussing. And so these are things that, that, that we're facing again. And so to your point, I, I think that, you know, that's where we are. That's where we're like having to start from. Right. It's, um, it's, it's hard. And I think that we have to actually start from that framework and understand, truly understanding our position in this country because, um, in Revolutionaries to Race Leaders by Cedric Johnson in the, in the intro of the book, he talked about um, black exploitation in the 1970s mm. and how those films kind of made the black radical look aloof yeah. and attached a lot of stereotypes to him. And these stereotypes have now made anybody who is pro-black and radical as if he's like almost a joke. As a, oh, like, oh, AP2 rah rah, he's, you know, he's, he's goofy, you know, like, he cares too much. And I think that's, that's a barrier, and, and that type of thinking still has these, the same, like, even bigger ramifications today. Yeah. Because now, you know, when you think like this, um, people, people automatically look at you as, like, okay, like, he, he a little too radical. Yeah, he's like a hotep. Or yeah, he's, he's a like hotep. Off this, the, yeah. The, the, the word like hotep. He's so, a Dr. Umar, yeah. Yeah, like, it's just, it's crazy because I was talking to this girl who goes to Howard. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say her name for sure. But she, she said like Dr. Carr gives off like hotel vibes. Yeah, and it's like, that's fair. But well, Dr. Carr, I, I really, maybe, maybe just because like I, I just love being in his class, but I don't see some anything wrong with somebody like right. him. Yeah, like obviously he's not perfect. You know, he's yeah. he, 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 he hasn't done everything correct. He hasn't everything perfectly. But when I think of a scholar who I want to be like. Yeah. Dr. Carr is 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 a shining example of maybe I might not study the same thing he studies, but just like the dedication yeah. to the craft and to black people, period. That goes into to what I was saying earlier about the black mindset that all black people have to have. And we don't have that. We're fragmented as a culture. So we have black people who are saying who are really perfectly ha- happy being with black people who do well financially in society or the black middle class or being the black one percent. We want that, we desire that, because we're okay, because we don't think that we're still oppressed, or as much as we used to be, or anything of that nature. That's how they got us. And that's how they got us. You get a taste of the capitalism. You get a taste of the, well, your family line now is a little different than it was 50 years ago. What's the big idea? You can vote now. You can you know, be in the same restaurant. That's how it started. That's this, this, the, the myth of, um, of a perfect you know, integration, right? Assimilation, which is a burning house, as MLK quoted. Episode 50 of the Black Lotus called The Burning House. There it goes. Like, <laughs> and so for me, you get in there and you're like, oh, I think I can do it. I think I can like navigate and, and be the best in this society if I just work hard enough. If I go to the best schools, if I you know, get the best grades, get the best job. It's this upward progressing of society that just collapses on you when you're up there. It collapses on you when you're in the middle. And so you look at other people who are pro-black, who are willing to do the struggle, which I think we should all do, right? We look at them as being too radical, too wild, off their rocker, hoteps, whatever that might mean. Unrealistic. Unrealistic. And we should all have that mindset, or at least 
portion of it. I, like I think a portion of it is at least. We don't all have to be the same. Yeah, we, we, and not everybody got to be like us. But we should all have an undying, unyielding support to all black people. This is the root of pan-Africanism. The root of it, bro. And I think that it's... um. That's something that the HBCU, I feel like it creates within black students. Yeah. I think it creates that. And it still struggles with it. And yeah, it does. With certain students in it certain does, areas. Exactly, and it does. Particularly when I think of like a place like SOB and I was in so Yeah, for sure. Like the, <laughs> like the beacon of capitalism at this school. But yeah, um, yeah. this is just, you know, I'm companies trying to get some black recruits and stuff like that, trying to, you know. But yeah. I, I think that, I think that here more than other schools definitely I think that just our curriculum is is very is very black um, even I wasn't an SOB but they a lot of them have this class called business law mm-hmm. B-Law and, yeah and, and like that professor used to talk about a lot of black a lot of black court cases and black issues and stuff like that and that's education that you're not gonna receive yeah at a different school oh not even close you know it's not, not even close and I think even that opening your opening your mind to that type of thinking, yeah, it's so it's so crucial, and it makes you, cause you you might hear that one idea, and now you're kind of it's like it's in the back of your mind, and then you might see something else, make a connection, as opposed to never seeing an idea and never even thinking that you might find this interesting or that how does this pertain to me? Yeah, why? What is this? How is it gonna make me care about my people more? And I think that's it's one of the biggest things that Howard taught me. Like it's gonna make for it's gonna make me forever a servant of the black community. Yeah, you know, like somebody who's going to try to try to you know advocate for my people, advocate for the people who are who weren't able to be in the spaces that I that I that I hopefully can can go into, you know, while also still being uh, just being an advocate for for the race, you know. I think that's where we all need to be as Black Americans, but also like we don't we all need to be that way for Black people. All across the diaspora, you know, mm-hmm. from a pan African pan Africanist approach. What I do envy about other minorities in this country, obviously, you know, and we'll get into that in a second. But for me, I envy this unity that they have amongst each other. This pride in being Latino, Hispanic. This pride in being Asian. You know, from Southeast, being Southeast Asian, from being Pacific Islander. Everybody like. Even though they, they might not get along all the time, they may have certain disagreements about certain things, but that's something that they all agree on is this pride and 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 power and who they are is their lineage, and they're willing to unite when it needs to be done. White people are excellent at this, as we can obviously see. Black people, you know, in America, obviously because of slavery, we're so fragmented in our unity that we. Some of us want the black capitalism. We want to be in the black spaces, white spaces, excuse me, with you know, the, the resources, the money, the trips to, you know, the islands and all this. Materialism. The material materialism because life is hard enough as a black person. I just want that breath of fresh air. Even though we don't really realize the air is toxic, but, you know, I envy that. And I, I, I hope that we will have that soon. I, I hope so too, bro. And I think that, we just need to. I I don't even know how to properly describe what, what we need to do, and I, I think that's something that keeps me going on this podcast. Like, just trying to get these ideas out in into the void. You know, as long it might it doesn't even matter if, if the clip I post goes viral, but as long as like 
like four hundred, five hundred people like saw it, like saw saw the question that was in the that was in the thumbnail or whatever. Like, yeah. Just thinking about that type of stuff and thinking like, damn, like, should I should I care about this more? And you know, it's kind of it's kind of nihilistic a little bit, but I personally feel that black people will not wake up until something catastrophic happens. I think like, so too. Yeah. I think it's gonna be something. And people like think, another slavery. Yeah. Or, yeah. And, and and people think like, oh, like slavery already happened. But it's like, nah, that was too long ago for, for us to actually remember what it was like. I think that, and, and I'm not saying I want it to happen, but I'm just saying what I what I think has to happen in order for us to truly wake up at a community level, because Malcolm X used to talk about how the Holocaust woke the Jews up. Yeah. It, it, it woke them up and it, and it made them know that, okay, we cannot, we cannot assimilate into society. We need to keep our culture. Yeah. We need to keep our customs. We need to work together because... When we don't work together, that all those atrocities of World War Two happen, and the Holocaust happens, yeah. you know. And I think that's a lesson that we haven't learned. We haven't learned enough, as but we, we we haven't learned yet collectively across all classes. Realizing that you are oppressed because of your race. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I think um, that was the best way to like you know to get a slave to obey. You know right through violence once you you know you break down the slave physically I mean their mental collapses immediately and so you know what follows is a group of people being released quote unquote again from this chattel slavery into nothingness right there's no nothing laws protecting them or giving them any property land or any money right and so you're left to figure out life on your own in nothingness right and so some people are able to crack that nothingness into you know, make something happen, and we we strive for that, but we have to understand that we are still in nothingness. And there's so many publications I want to write. One is called you know being nobody. You know what is it? What, how how does it feel to really be nobody, right? But and, and this idea that you you think that you're somebody and you're striving towards being, you know, um, accepted in society, but you don't realize like it's never gonna happen. And it's not really to be nihilistic or pessimistic by any means, but it is to say that, you know, we just have to see see things how they really are. But, you know, you look at your people, you look at your black people, and you say, well, I have hope in us. I, I know that, and maybe that hope is just epistemological. It's, it's in your consciousness. It's in the knowledge that you all can create and share together. Maybe it's cultural. Maybe it's, you know, um, maybe it, it, it's scientific. Who knows? But... I think it's, it's certain you know, liberation freedom that may not come just economically, but it can come in other, other ways. So that's where I am with that. And I think that's that's so true, bro, because I think that we, we can't just look at liberation just from a, um, the materialistic economic money standpoint. Yeah. Because a lot of a lot of issues in black America do stem from the lack of resources. Oh, absolutely. The lack of financial resources, like so many stem from that. But if, if, if we want to get to where we need to go um, I think that we need to I don't, I don't just take I don't want to say improve socially I don't think that's, that's the right that's the right phrasing but just more like start just, just being being realistic I I don't yeah. I, I think it's just I know that white people are never going to give us anything exactly and we're not asking for anything and for me I think of like I, I got shout out my hometown I'm from Black Wall Street. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right, I want to get into that. Yeah, like the history of Black Wall Street. Like these black people were coming from the deep south, 
Some of them had money, some of them didn't. Their main thing was they had the mindset of unity, of entrepreneurship. I mean, their mental like knowledge of the of America and who who they were going to be. It was of unity, and they were white people didn't let them in their stores. White people didn't let them on their side of town. Give give that like, but they were able to create the richest black community ever had in, in America from a mindset. The money came after right years and years of, of working and toiling the land and you know creating these hospitals, movie theaters, libraries, hospitals. And they literally had like six private airlines that were black owned. Like really six. So for me, I'm looking at this like you starts with the mindset. You be real realistic about. They don't want me here. They're not going to give me anything. This is what's up. Cool. I'm cool with that because I got my community. And it wasn't like it was a ton of them. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's a it's thousands, but it's not millions. It's not the majority of the country. It's one little side of town. But if we duplicate that nationwide, like the, the mindset. The, this, the mindset. We start with that. It's not just, it's not about the economic. It's, it's about. That will come. It's, it's, it will come. It's about the mindset. Yes. The mindset, and we, we try to get get the money before the mindset, or money without the mindset. It doesn't work that way, right? Yeah. That's why we talk about going to HBCUs. We're trying to grasp more of that mindset, the, the mindset, before we get into white society and get the money or whatever, whatever. Get your bag. I'm not saying don't, but it is prioritize that mindset and unity in your black people first. Facts, and I think that correlates with there was an inner leisure event that I went to at Howard, like. Like last semester, I believe, and yeah, it was like around like November, December, and one of the dudes was like, "Generational wealth is not just about building. Generational wealth is not just money. Mm-hmm. Generational wealth comes from generational habits." Wow, it's about generational habits. My dog, yeah, yeah, bro. He was he was spitting, bro. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind as black people if we want to create generational wealth. It starts with what are you doing on a day to day basis. How are you thinking? How are you thinking about helping each other? Because I've always taken it from the standpoint. It's like, this is this is the Howard in me. This is the Dr. Claude Anderson in me. But it's just like, I don't want anything from white people. Mm. I, as black people, I don't feel like that is what's going to, to, to get us where we need to be. Do they, do they need to fix? I feel like they do have some level of responsibility to fix what is wrong in our community. You know, like, they're, they they definitely have some level of responsibility, but it's like every 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 act of legislation or every any way of legislation that has helped us as black people, we did it because we said y'all owe us this. Yeah. He wasn't asking. He wasn't asking for no civil rights bill. He was yeah. like, according to y'all, we should have this. You know that that's that's what I really thought the the brilliance of Martin Luther King comes from because he. The, the whole approach of nonviolent was it of nonviolent was um nonviolent resistant action I can't remember the phrase but just how he was nonviolent like it came from a standpoint of like abiding to the principles in the American Constitution it's like all men are created equal it, it is a, an inherent contradiction yeah. in your society that we do not have rights especially when y'all trying to become a world power and yeah. dominate over the rest of the world along with the African peoples how can y'all be looked at as some leader of democracy when 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 the when the when the when the sub when, when the you know, when the when the subclass in your in your society don't even have rights yeah you know None. and and I think of you know even something that Trina she said is like we're not asking for reparations we're demanding like, yeah this is 
y'all and like when it pisses me off, bro. Like, like last and 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 one time, bro. This stuff, I wanted to talk about integration. Um, oh man. And but, oh, but, man. but before before I get into that, like I thought about how um, in San Francisco, like there there there's been like a surge. There's been a surge in crime, and a lot of people are mad. A lot of the crime is being done by black people because San Francisco has neglected the black people like every other metropolitan city in this country. Yeah. And with the Bay Area, with how expensive stuff is, it's the it's gonna be worse. The wealth inequality, like, bro, there's not even a real middle class in San Francisco. And mm. especially a black middle class. In the Bay Area period, you were hard pressed to find like a like a middle class suburban black community. You know, that's not something that that's just really, scatters, kind of spread it's just out. kind of scattered and spread out. Yeah. And when you when you talk about that, a lot of these people will think that, oh, my God, like there's this councilman. He was like, these people are hurting and the crime started started booing him because hmm. they don't want to they don't want to talk about that. They want they want the whole idea of law and order. Which is why I feel like there are there are there are tough times ahead, but there is a level of optimism within me because I feel like this next decade, this next ten to fifteen years, we as black people are gonna realize that okay, it's real, it's really us against the world. For sure. Because you know you got all this legislation like critical race theory and all that type of stuff, and I and I think that it's going to take us to see how what's us to see how these people are. What they think should be done with us, and in order for us to see that, okay, like, all right, we need to we need to work together. We need to actually start. We need to start doing something before it's too late. And I think that, um, it's, I think there's there there's going to be a, a profound movement within the next few decades, bro. Like like for real. And I think every every movement there there there's a catalyst behind it, and there needs. To, but for the movement that's going to happen, there needs to be a sustained catalyst. It needs to be sustained. I keep saying the mindset is that sustained catalyst. Like, I mean, the people of the 1970s, like our, 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 the black power movement that we look up to so much, I mean, they had the mindset. They weren't rich. They didn't have all the resources in the world. They just had a mindset that said that was uncompromising. Like, we're not going to be complacent, acquiescent with any resource that you give us, any representation. But we demand liberty, and we demand it now, like mm-hmm. full freedom, full liberty. You demand the, the fullness of it, and you might get like the residuals of it. You might get bits and pieces of it. But you got to start high. I think for, for, for like, what you're saying, Josiah, is like, as black people, we need to have a collective fullness of freedom that we're arguing for, that we're urging. And America, it will collapse if it doesn't give us that. It will. You know, and so that'll be the thing that, that pushes us into a, a whole new, you know, substrata of, you know, a whole new spectrum of, of freedom for us. Oh, a whole new spectrum, bro. And it just pisses me off because a lot of these people are so quick to be like, like put them in jail, incarcerate them. They're, they're going to learn. They're, they're going to, if they go to jail, they're going to realize what they're doing was wrong. And it's like, I feel like some people, something that people fail to understand is that these people feel hopeless and desperate right now. And you can't police the oppressed. Like you, you can't like kick a dog while while it's down. You know, like metaphor that I'm using now. It's like these people. You have you literally purged them of all financial opportunity in this country. Like you purged them of any 
navigating of society in a positive way. You take away college from them. You take away, you know, job opportunities from them. And then you say, all right, now pick yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen for yourselves. How? Like, it's literally beyond impossible. How, bro? Or, Or if it's not impossible, it's so, like, difficult that, like, no human should have to go through that. And then we'll say, but the crime in the cities because of the black people, all this, all this. It's like, you're looking at things at face value without any context, any, any, in, in philosophy, we, we have, we say we have to read charitably. You're not looking at any charitable measures of the situation. Like, especially, for example, let's say like you did something um, like, I don't know, like you accidentally t- took a book from a place you didn't know. It was like, oh, I didn't know, like, you know, this was on the table for somebody. Mm-hmm. You give it back to them. Well, you know, someone someone get, being charitable to you would say, well, oh yeah, like it didn't have my name on it. It was just sitting there. I, I walked away. I didn't know, you know, whatever. You're giving the benefit of the doubt. It's not excusing them of what they've done. It's saying like, hey, I understand where you're coming from. As opposed to looking at crime in, in cities and saying, well, there's an upsurge in San Francisco. These black people are just terrible. We told you they were biologically inferior, all this. They're just terrible people. They're savages. No, it's saying... No, they're in a messed up situation. Rent keeps increasing. They, you know, one misstep for a lot of black people and like you're economically done for a while. You can yeah. become homeless, especially in these like major cities. And so we have to, we can't look at things at face value. We have to have charitability when we, you know, view these situations. Exactly. And that's the thing. We, that's why we're in this current situation in America. We, yeah. We look at everything as face value. And that it's always a, it's always a political tool, you know, the whole prison industrial complex. Like when you go back to the nineteen sixties, when 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 things in the black community started going down kind of downward direction, you know, the whole deterioration of our family structure, they they started putting us in jail. Yeah. They started like they, they militarized the police force, they they all the all the corporate entities moved the jobs from from, from the cities to, to Asia. Yeah. Like all that stuff that it's like it's like when you think of the crack epidemic, like it literally came at a at a quote unquote perfect time, for like it came it came it came at a perfect time because it's like we we're looking for a job. Okay, this crack is in the neighborhood. Let me sell it. I'm gonna that's how I'm gonna provide for my family. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Then, then you go to jail. Then then people in the community get get strung out. They're not doing anything, you know, because they're they're off that because they're stressed. These people are stressed because they can't find a job. Like, bro, in 1980, the black male unemployment rate was like 20%. Yeah. And that's just documented mm-hmm. unemployment. That, that that doesn't even account for all the people who weren't even on the books to be surveyed or or or, or, or measured for their unemployment, bro. And it's like, when you, when you take into account, when you take that into account, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. What do you think is gonna happen? Yeah. What do you think is gonna happen in the community? What you? you They're think, still gonna go to college. They're still gonna be great in society. And like, like what? Being a bro? C-suite, you know. No. And, that, and that's one of the hard things because we, as black people, when when these when these changes like deindustrialization occurred, like white people had a, it, it it affected them too, but it didn't affect them at the same level because a lot of them still had the resources and the money for sure to send their kids to college. Also, a lot of them. War veterans, they had received the benefits of of from, from the GI Bill. You know, they got they got their housing, they got their big house, which is one of the biggest reasons why the racial why the racial wealth gap just increased exponentially. Because when coming out of World War Two, they were getting houses and we wasn't that they still own today. Yeah, that they still own. 
Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about this in the case reparations. I mean, in the article that he wrote, just talking about Chicago specifically, like, I mean, these black people were doing the Great Migration to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the goal was, there was solely black people looking for good jobs, better ways of life, of living from the deep, deep South. And what ended up happening is, you know, I mean, the redlining of Chicago was one of the worst in the country. One of the worst, yeah, facts. And saying, okay, black people, are, looks like they're moving into this area. Let's extract all the resources from this area. Get white people move to the suburbs, you know, move to Naperville, you know, all this. And, and to say, now you have these black people who are stripped of resources, which funds, you know, the local schools, public schools that they're going to. The schools are going to be worse, right? It's a domino effect of every decision that local government did. I mean, you know, the housing, don't even get me started on that. Like, the reduction of the value of housing, just leading to black people being in areas where obviously crime is going to increase, obviously things are going to be, you know, worse off for black people. But it's all strategically engineered by the local and federal governments. And it's, and it's praised, right? But it's in the sense of, if you look at it at face value and say, oh, Chicago's so bad, all this, well, you're missing out, like we said earlier, the charitability. You're not looking at the situation historically. It's so intellectual. You're just looking at it. You're just looking at it. I mean, like, not, like that is so bottom-tier level of thinking that we need to look at situations from a long-view genealogy that Dr. Carr always talks about. Exactly. Movement and memory. I mean, Chicago is a version of movement, movement and memory, right? Facts. And it's like, bro, you have people like, like Candace Owens who, 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 like just the the epitome of a sellout. Yeah. You know, like I, I know for a fact she don't believe everything that, that she says. No. Like, sure. Her money because white people love to feel good about yeah. themselves. They, they like to feel that they are not as bad as history paints them out to be. Yeah. Which is why you have a lot of these people who look at black people as like, oh, they're the violent ones, not us. Yeah. They're they. They deserve what's coming to them because because you know like they're black and we're white and, and, yep. and we're and we're better you know that's yeah. how that's how a lot of them feel unfortunately and it's like we we sellouts like that play into the consciousness of, of those people make them feel better you know they they love a black person who absolves them of responsibility bro. oh absolutely and it goes back to just the whole point of like redlining and all those all those institutional um, holdbacks that, that they said that they that they said, bro, and it's like you when you factor redlining along with the 1956 Highway Commission Act, which which bore freeways straight through black communities, fucking destroyed them. Just just about there were so many burgeoning communities, so many burgeoning black communities that were just destroyed because black people were like, all right, we need highways. All the white people are going to the suburbs. We don't care about the city anymore. Let's yeah. build these highways right through. You can. When you look at highways today, like I encourage you, I made a post about this on the, on the Black Lotus um, Instagram page. Check it out. We got fire content there. But oh, sure. <laughs> shut but, out, yes, yeah, sir. But like we, I, I talked. I went. I went to Miami for spring break, and we went to um. Where we go? We went to. Uh, I'm about to get on the phone right now, bro. You were with LJ, right? Yeah, I was with LJ. Big group. Gavin, Jack. It was. It was deep. I think it was I think it was Old Town. Hold yeah, 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 yeah. Old Town, Old Town in Florida, which is which is a black black community. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I feel like I'm getting it wrong, but it doesn't matter. Like, basically, it was a community that that was a thriving black community, like like black black wealth everywhere. Like the first black millionaire was was there. I forgot his name. I, I, I 
It's on, it's on my, I took a picture, I took a screenshot of the street that's named after him, uh, the, the picture of it. And basically what I'm trying to say is that like, there's a highway that was built straight through it. Straight through. And there was so much wealth there. Like, it was, t- when I read about the neighborhood, they was talking about like some of the biggest black entertainers. They used to, the biggest black and white entertainers used to come over to that it's part crazy. of town. Like, everybody was there. Like, that was a spot. That was, that's why white people used to love going there because they was getting entertained. Like, that was a spot. But then when you have things like, you know, like, Urban renewal. Yeah, urban renewal, but highways getting built straight through a community. Even the film where this is in San Francisco, like, bro, back in the day in the 50s, it was called the Harlem of the West, bro. Yeah, literally, yeah. It's called the Harlem of the West, and the the Gary Street Street expansion cut a a highway right through, cut cut an expressway right through that area, and actually my great-grandmother lost her house because of that, and... The, go- the government gave her a house in re- return of that in a different part of San Francisco, but my grandmother always talks about how her mother just cried and cried because she was getting separated and taken out of her community. Wow. And they were just getting separated. Man. Getting, getting, getting shipped off to Southeast San Francisco, which is, which is pretty far f- from the Fillmore. Like, Southeast San Francisco, another area that is divided by the highway that is built in San Francisco. The highway in San Francisco, like, you can, if when, when you look at it from a historical standpoint, literally black white on one side that's how it's not it's not like that anymore because a lot of black people don't even really live in that area anymore it's getting gentrified but that's how it was my uncle told me about like the houses um when my when my grandparents were looking for houses in the 19 in the 1960s they moved into the house i live in now in 1962 when they was looking for the houses the the um the the realtors or whatever they they said oh because like like the neighborhood is it's it's pretty connected it's all connected and the the highway is you usually just go under the highway and it's pretty much the same stuff just the highway goes goes through it but it was no black people on that side of the highway and those houses are are really nice like it's 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 nicer stuff over there and on the side that the black people are on you have all the industrial stuff you have the hundreds point shipyards which used to be which was used to be active in that time period and those those shipyards used to get a lot of jobs. That was closed in nineteen seventy four, which put a lot of black men out of a profession, hmm. which raised crime in my neighborhood. Um, along along with the fact of like just radiation and just just pollution that has killed a lot of black people. Like my mom was she was she me and my she was trying to get me and my sister to like sign something for like a lawsuit that the Bayview residents, which is the name of the neighborhood, Bayview Hunters Point, the Bayview residents are filing against the city of San Francisco because of the radiation that is still in the area today that 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 killed an untold amount of black people that we have no idea about and just like just to sum all that stuff up is like when you got all these black people like robbing doing all that stuff it's like it it it's for a reason bro and like my grandmother came up for my graduation bro for our graduation like yeah. um she she had never she hadn't been to dc in like like 40 50 years and when she was walking through, she kept saying how it reminded her of Fillmore in San Francisco when she was she was young. Like, wow. She was a, she was a teenager during that time period. Like she she saw she saw that area when it was up, you know. And she said it reminded her of that, and it just made me kind of sad because like she I mean she was only gonna be there for so long, and I could tell it made her happy to kind of look at that as like restore some positive memories. Yeah. Of just seeing like what what things used to you used to be like and. For, for me, something that motivates me is I want to get 
got to a point to where we could thrive like that. Wow. As black people, bro. Because it's a, it's a lot of stuff. And I used to work in the Fillmore District in San Francisco. And I said Safeway. And I love being a neighborhood. I love seeing black people. But I could also tell there was a lot of pain in, in, in the area of the neighborhood. Like, it's just, it's not it's not what it used to be. And one day I hope things can be, can get back to that way, whether it's over there or somewhere else. But just somewhere where, where we can use that collective mindset that we were talking about earlier to, to help push us to a better future. I love that. I love that a lot. But everything you mentioned about San Francisco reminded me of a book, um, How to Kill a City, I believe it is. And it had like four or five different you know, city locations. But one, I think the first one is San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And it talks about historically, it was, a, it was a very black city. Like, yeah, bro. With tons of culture. It wasn't just black, it was other cultures. It was a lot of culture, bro. Yeah, it was it's like, crazy. a lot of people like don't realize how black San Francisco really was. Yeah. And it wasn't just like, it wasn't just Oakland. It was Oakland and San San Fran, you know, and Oakland was even more black than it is now. Yeah. And so, you know, obviously from gentrification, right, urban renewal, all these different things, you know, you know, black people were getting pushed out and, and having to go farther and further in the Bay Area or move out of California altogether. Mm-hmm. That's exactly um, what's happening, bro. Exactly. And so, you know, and it gets to a point economically where the only people that can survive are, you know, white and Asian people, people just with, you know, incredibly, you know, gifted positions and jobs. And, you know, it is always think about, man, I wonder what San Francisco was like, you know, 60 years ago. Bro. I wish I... Could have been there. But you saying that just brought chills down my spine, bro. Because, like, yeah. a lot of my family is older. Like, my, my my mom, my uncles, like, they were able to see a remnant. They they didn't, I wouldn't say they saw it at its peak. But they saw, they got a glimpse. Like, they, they grew up in, in, in the tail end of it. So, where they were still able to experience a little bit of, yeah. that, that community. Like, the, the, street, the street I live on now used to be all black. Wow. Like my grandmother, whenever we look out the window, she always like refers to the houses as the like through the names of the black people who used to live there, and that's something that I would just love to see like that 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 true community to where like we're in like a black a black space, a black yeah. space, bro, and kind of just something that made me think of like one of the girls at the Johns Hopkins was a black girl, so she goes to UMD. Um, she was talking about how like she asked a question, how can we Create these black spaces to where we can have these conversations and not have to worry about critique from white people and stuff yeah. like that. And nobody really. She asked a question, but nobody really had an answer, and it made me kind of sad because I I want to get back to a place to where we can kind of not not advocating for like this 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 complete segregation, but black spaces are important for us to feel. For us to just be be in tune with ourselves and build that mindset of self development and like actually wanting to and actually wanting to to not only better ourselves individually but also collectively. Yeah. And like it um it's just it's just that's just something I want to get back to, bro. Yeah. It's and it's I don't know how, but like I said, like being here at Howard just made me so much more aware of that. I would love to experience the type of San Francisco that that my mom was able to experience, and my uncles were able to experience, bro. Cause it sounds it sounds great. Like my, my uncle showed me pictures of like it was a picture in nineteen sixty nine of like all the black kids on the block on like one staircase. Like it was like like twenty. Of them. 
Like, like they was, it was deep, bro. Just having a good time, just having fun. Um, you know, all we know now is photos. And I feel the same way about Tulsa. Like, I just wish I could have been there. You know, because it, it rebuilt three times after 1921. Yeah, yeah it did. I, I read about that. But like we said earlier, Urban Renewal, like, I mean, after the 1970s, I mean, it was done for real. You know, in the 40s, it grew back even bigger. Yeah, yeah I, I watched a video about that yesterday. Yeah, nobody talks about nobody that. Nobody talks about it. I wish I would have, you know, been able to be a part of it. Like, we talk about Watchmen and um, Lovecraft Country. Like, I mean, they literally recreated it in, in, in the media. And I kept thinking, they mentioned my high school, Booker T. Washington High School. Mm-hmm. And, like, they were getting ready for their prom that night. The prom was, you know, that night. And they weren't able to have their prom in my high school because of, like, the, the bombing. And for me, I'm always thinking, like, what would it have been like to go to Booker T. at that time, right? Or being being in Tulsa at that time. We don't really think of, like, Oklahoma as, like, a black, you know, like, hub or black place. But a lot of people don't know. Oklahoma has and always had the most all black talented out of any state in America. Wow. Like, it was over 100 at one point. Now, it's, wow. it's reduced down to 13 that are still going on. Uh. You know, and so f- for me, I've been to Bowley, you know, um, and, 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 you know, and, and places like that. And so for me, it's like, you know, like, like you said about San Francisco, I want to get back to that with, with Tulsa too. But, you know, we'll get there eventually, man. We'll find a way. We will, and I think it's from. It's definitely gonna take a, like a like a, a shift. It's gonna take a, a shift in thinking. Um, that I feel like you know we have to lead. Yeah. You know, it's it's our responsibility as scholars to kind of you know like set forth the like how how not not how the community can think, but just kind of just showing them a glimpse of like you know like how can we a glimpse into what what can be what's what's possible. I think that's one of the biggest things, and and also being able to communicate that. Because I was something I was talking about with my homeboy, like in, at Hopkins, he he goes to Princeton, like real, 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 real smart, real, real like a, a real radical. You know yeah. What I'm like on and, game. Yeah, like on on game for real. I'd love to get him on here, but like um, he was just talking about how like the importance of being able to. Because when, when you get in academic spaces, like the language gets crazy. Um, <laughs> You know, like, For sure. like it's a lot of big words, a lot of words that that the average person don't know, bro. I was sitting up there sometimes, like they were like, bro, "What are they talking about, bro?" Like, it's not necessary, like, like it's yeah. superfluous, right? Like, exactly, it's dinner elitist, bro. Yeah, it is, it's, it's it super, is super elitist, bro. And it's like trying to communicate these these abstract concepts to somebody who maybe not who might not understand it, yeah, or who is not in a position to have those resources. But they, they're concepts that 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 they still understand. They'll be able to understand the concept if you explain it in the right way, and I think that's I think that's something that you know that's 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 what, that's a responsibility that we have to focus on. You know, like bridging bridging those those the, the thoughts that we have to the masses of black people to you know start a shift in that mindset because it has to start somewhere, bro. No, it has to. Completely agree. It has to start somewhere, bro. And I kind of wanted to talk about, like I said earlier, integration and like yeah. How does the whole? I have a question about integration. How does the whole dichotomy of like us us kind of abandoning our black communities once we were able to start going into white communities to shop? How does that relate into Afro pessimism? Because it seems like there is like a there is an inferiority complex that despite all the building that we did as black people post slavery and the years after slavery. 
the in 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 throughout the the progress of the civil rights movement, the the perseverance that we showed, there was still a need to assimilate into these white spaces, and we abandoned a lot of our own spaces. Like Dr. Cloud always talks, like before segregation, during segregation, we had ten times more businesses. Yeah, ten times, bro. Like that's crazy. That's crazy. I'm just kind of curious, like if if there has been like. I, I is is there is there a thinking on that topic or or like what do, what do you think about that? Yeah, um, well, integration is is a big myth, right? It's it's this idea that you know once laws are changed, the social positions and the social attitudes will change as well. Never the case, right? And that's what MLK really meant about his burning house quote, right? Having white people into a burning house. Yeah, like he believed that. America had lost its vision of morality, that white Americans had forgotten about the I have a dream, right? Of, you know, white children, black children holding hands together and just this, you know, society that we can just be judged by the concept of our character and not the color of our skin. He realized, wait, like it's so irrational to the point that white people are so irrational that they're not even focused on that for real. That's not like gonna ever happen. And so he believed that the burning house, well, we get inside, collapse on us, we burn up. That's very well been the case, right? And, you know, this is also a contradiction to the talented 10th, you know, position of W.B. Du Bois. Obviously, he changed that narrative he later did. on. Absolutely, yeah. becoming a pan-African. A lot of people don't know that. Dying in 1963 in Ghana. Like, mm-hmm. changed his ideas completely, but this is early, early Du Bois, right? Yeah. And so this idea of the talented 10th, the best... 10 percent of us will uh, black people they'll you know they'll take care of the 90 percent that are just below and that they'll lead us to freedom whatever and that's in the most simplest terms but in reality you know we find that those are all they never work out that way they're always missed we always get a little bit and like we get ate up by everything else and so the the idea is that you know, for integration that if we just have barriers taken away because all we could see is black people were the barriers but once the barriers were taken away then we could have an even greater amount. We could have what the white people had. Right. It's always a view of I wonder what master didn't didn't allow me to have. And it's really a dialectic. It's a conversation between master versus slave. It's a master versus slave dialectic. Right? Let's talk about this, right? Black men in the fields will see the the, the master's daughter walking around, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't have her. It's like I, you know, she's she's blocked off from me. But you know, once we're free from slavery, we desire that. We desire what we've never been able to have, the white woman. We can talk about the marriage inequality of black women versus men. I mean, of black men wanting to be with you know, non-black women. That is, that, um, like I just said, comes from slavery, right? We're always wanting things we historically didn't have. And so for integration, we're like, we can finally have these things. We can finally have you know, no more hand-me-downs in classrooms and schools, but you know, new books, right? You can have, you know, the best quality education, all this. It comes with a price. It comes with the price of, you know, you sitting in the corner of the classroom in the 1950s, 1940s, and during Jim Crow, it's you, literally, the door being opened of the classroom, you're, you're sitting right across from the lockers, looking into the classroom to hear, this is what we went through, right, to get an education. These are just examples, but that ideology that dichotomy maybe has 
systemic social uh, has um, legally changed, but the mindset has not changed in the eyes of, of white people until for me integration is the the second biggest sin after 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 slavery of America. <sighs> Bro, integration. <laughs> I that when you look at when things started to change, like you literally can those they go hand in hand. Like when, when we integrated, we I think that the the resources like it's not like like black people are still poor just like they were during segregation, you know. Like more now. More and more now and I think one of the biggest things was the mindset shift. Because it's like during 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 segregation, like black people had the mindset of like, all right, even though like I'm I'm still black, I'm, I'm still black. It's like you weren't separated from your blackness. It's like people, it's like people black affluent black people now are separated from their blackness in a way of like I don't really care about helping my people. At but all. but it's like the thing is, it's easy to do that when you don't live amongst your people. Yeah, it's like during during segregation. Like, Lawyers and doctors, they was living in the same community as as more as the impoverished people who didn't have those jobs. Like, like if you was black, you was living there. Yeah. So they had more people to look up to. Now, you we don't see none of that, and it's like, even the whole standpoint of like, you see somebody who got a nice car, you might see a lawyer, or doctor who got a nice car, pull up in your neighborhood. Want that? Yeah. You like okay, I want that. I want to be like him. Now, in the in this in this current era. The only the only people that we can see with that type of wealth in our lives and that, that that black people in the hood can see with that type of wealth is through that the rapper and the athlete. Yeah, that's it. You know, because because we are fortunate enough to have been in space tour. We we have seen these affluent black people. You know, going to school like however like a lot of black people like like we we can't see it. We can't see it. You know, what you see is what you see is what you come to believe about yourself. You know, what you believe is possible for yourself. Yeah. and it's like. I think that as I've realized I've learned more about integration and stuff like that, I some that's something that I realized about that that's hurt us. And I think when you say it was a sin, I feel like it was a, from a standpoint is like we we abandoned ourselves. Hmm. We 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 wanted to we want all the white things and you know, it's kinda of makes you think like, you know, like we assimilated into the white ideal of materialism, you know, the, the capitalism the consumer mindset we inherited everything that they believed in mm-hmm. we inherited everything they believed in all of their mindsets you know we even even just from the standpoint of like 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 i'm about to i'm about to shit on feminism a little bit but like i feel like a lot of feminist ideals like were 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 they were geared towards white men mm. like from, from the standpoint of like I want freedom in my household. Black people, like we, we work together mm. since since the end of slavery. Like there was there was never a black person in the household who had enough money to be a breadwinner to to be a breadwinner and be the only person working. Both black people had to be working. Both black people had to be more responsible. In the it was house. a unit. It was a, it was a unit, which is why you see today when black fathers are in the household, they do more household things compared to other races of men because this is how we have, this is how we have came to be yeah. this is what we are used to seeing this is what we see in our home this is what we saw our dads do you know or like like black fathers are more are more are more 
there for their children. They're going to clean more, all that stuff. Got cooked, you know, then the responsibilities are shared more. And it's like, I feel like some something that we, something that, well, in terms of feminism, an idea that a lot of black women have latched onto is the idea of like, I want to get free from the black man. Mm. When when the initial struggle, the, the initial foundation of feminism was not for you. It was white, white feminism. Yeah, sure. white, yeah, thank, thank you for clarifying that. White, white, white feminism. Yeah, it was white women who believed that they could reach the equality of white men. Exactly. By, you know, um, it, it was that, that pursuit to break down these laws and barriers that would keep them from that. But black women have always known, I, I can't speak for black women, but I can maybe presume black women know that they'll never be, in America at least, a social, um, on a social, socially equal, equal to white men. Right. You know, black women are fighting for a completely different set of issues. Completely different set of issues. And so attempting to inherit those issues, you know, is, it's quite difficult. It's a lot of roadblocks. Exactly. And I think that's the thing, like, looking at issues from the wrong standpoint. And it's like, because obviously, you know, black women are going to benefit from some of that stuff just because they're a woman, you know, a lot of those policies and stuff like that. But yeah, the biggest beneficiaries of the civil rights movement was white women, economically. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, like... Once all those discrimination was in the shadows. Yeah, exactly. Once all the once all those all those all the discriminatory barriers were lifted, a white woman is propped up because although she's a woman, she's still white. Yeah, yeah. That proximity to that power structure. Exactly. Yeah. That that power structure and that culture and the ways of knowing and stuff like that. I think that's something that um, when you add into integration, I feel like something that also hurt us. You know. Just those those ideas. Looking at it, it's like okay, like now I want to be separate from, not not separate from from the black man, but I'm I'm attaching on a set of values, a, a set of ideas that is not directly applicable to him, um, and I I think like that, and then just along with other division that we have in our community, I feel like a lot of it has stemmed from integration. Absolutely, you know, and it's um, it's it's just sad to see because we, we talk about all this stuff and like, and and hey, if if a girl listens to this and you have a problem with what I said, please cop on me and educate me. Like, I want to <laughs> I want to get more girls on the podcast. Like, I want I want I want some more like some more and more. Many more, yeah. Yeah, I want to get more. I want to get more like more 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 feminist um, ideologies on here just so I can you know like build and grow on the things that I that I've. Learned about and obviously I don't I'm I don't, I don't really know enough so if you if you want to hop on just let me know text me like I'm not that hard to reach like but never too ill never like, too Hollywood and I'm never never <laughs> too Hollywood I'm always trying to learn so like you know I, I hop on and let me know something but like I I feel like this integration from this standpoint is like we're we're not really we're not really taught that bro yeah. I can even go into some point of like education and how like during when when uh, Brown v. Board was lifted, when 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 Brown v. Board was enacted, the the overarching effects of that were forty thousand black teachers lost their jobs, mm. which is crazy. Forty thousand. Think of that's forty thousand teachers. That's one that's one teacher in a class of maybe like twenty twenty five. Think of all the millions of black kids. Yeah. That was impacted by that stuff, bro. Yeah. They went to schools where teachers didn't care about them. You know, like, things like that actually 
valuing yourself, your mindset. I feel like the, the pride within yourself can go way further than the education, than a formal education can take you. And from a, from a purpose-filled standpoint, in which you, in what you're indebted to for your people, that's something that, that that I feel like integration killed us off like crazy. And W. B. Du Bois was talking about that shit in the 1930s, bro, because he that's why he left the NAACP. Yeah. Because the, they were so hardline integrationists. Yeah. Like, just, just just trying to just trying to get black people in. If we can just get in, exactly. If we can yeah. just get in, and Du Bois was like, like, at first he agreed, but then he was like. Is this is this really the right way to go? Because that's how he used to be, especially exactly. when, he, when he grew up. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. if I can just you know go to Harvard and, and be in the, the society, you know, then he goes, then he writes about you know I go south, and he's talking about his time at Fisk. A lot of that started changing, right? HBCU. H- literally, and so you know he's seeing black people in a different part of the country. The mindset is changing, and over his lifetime, like even in his work, Dark Water, he's just changing. He has a whole section called you know the souls of white folks. That perspective in 1920 versus him writing, you know, early on, his perspective is completely changing. And so, you know, I think a lot of black teachers, obviously, a lot of these HBCUs started off as like teachers in preacher schools, right? Mm-hmm. To raise, you know, pre- train t- preachers and teachers. And a lot of these black people were trained in that, that, you know, tradition. A lot of black men were preachers, a lot of black women were teachers. And you said 40,000, you know, black teachers, primarily gonna be black women. These black women are without a job, and the family structure changes, right? And so, that's that's a point I didn't even think about. Yeah, and so economically, you know, it's just starting a whole line of lost jobs, and it starts that, you know, domino effect of the black family breaking up and financial inequality, you know. So, you know, everything I think is like a domino effect as well. It's it's a domino effect, bro. I think that we are growing up like I can speak for like MLK documentaries and stuff like. They used to paint like all the black schools as like like it was pretty much hell. Like it was it was hell for like black kids to be learning amongst black kids. Like such a push to get black students in white classrooms. And it's like that's that wasn't supposed to be the point of all this. The point of this wasn't wasn't to get black people into white spaces. The point was for all races of all spaces to of all races to come into each other's spaces. That was the point of it. Yeah. But since we had that inferiority complex as black people, we went to their stuff, but they didn't go to our stuff. Right. I, I read that a reason, another reason why, there was this dude from, from Tulsa, he was talking about like the reason why Black Wall Street failed is because like when integration occurred, like a lot of black people stopped shopping at, 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 the, Tulsa place, at the Tulsa places. Yeah, completely. And they started going to the white stores because they were able to now. Yeah. And it's like, I think. And they have the money too. Exactly. Like, they, they have the bread to do it. Yeah. So I think when you, when you factor all that stuff in, bro, it's like where we need to truly analyze like our, our, our psyche and how much does proximity to whiteness truly mean to us. And, and, and if we want to get somewhere, we have to understand that and, and actually address that and be realistic. As well as I think as black people, we need to stop being afraid of being segregationists. I'm a segregationist, and, and for me, it's not I, in, in a belief that we're better than anyone else, and we need to just stay stay to our, ourselves 24-7. There's a lot of benefits, though, of segregation, though, for black people. We talk about San Francisco, Tulsa, these black communities. They did so well because they were together. 
right? We start off with that mindset and everything else follows. And we had, the, we had black churches, black schools, I mean, black everything. And the benefits of that is a unity in our, amongst our people, pan-African approaches to viewing life, you know, stronger black household, more black men marrying black women. I mean, all these positive benefits. I'm not saying we'd, we'd be segregated 100% of the time, but for those crucial points in our lives, we should be segregated, I do believe. And it doesn't have to be this, because people like, think segregation, they'll, they'll think this, like, oh, like, you're, 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 you're racist, or like, you don't, you don't, Absolutely want, not. You don't want black people, white people interacting with each other, but... Everyone else is segregationist, but they don't say it. Literally, like, and so it's like, it's like, bro, white people still be living in primarily white communities. White schools? White, like, white schools, all, all, all white, bro. Every like, race does that in America. Every race does that. And they do so well when they're together and when we're amongst each other because of this irrationality of racism. Like, we don't get along. But amongst your own people, that's why everybody, like, even in high school, I went to a very diverse high school, Booker T. Washington High School, and everybody would sit with their people. Like, nobody really had a problem with it. I sat with the black people. There was, like, a white table over there, it was like Hispanic table, and people benefited from that. In class, it's diverse. Walk around the school, super diverse. But in those deep moments, you're culturally, culturally connecting, connecting on you know, common things, and really like, there's a lot of benefits, you know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. And I think that one of the biggest things that people will try to like apply to you when you, when you say something like you're segregationist, like, they'll be like, okay, you're, you're a hateful person and stuff like that. You're you. We can't return segregation because look, look at all the bad things that were done to us during segregation. Look, look at all, look at all the horrible things that was that was done. All the lynching and stuff like that. That right there is looking is looking at another black problem from the white perspective. The white gaze, yeah. This is from from the white perspective, bro. It's like we are looking at it. We are looking at these problems as like, oh my god, they were doing all this stuff during segregation. Let, let's 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 ignore that stuff. Not, not, not in a, in a disrespectful way. But let's let's look at the other's perspective. Like, what were black people doing in these spaces yeah. Yeah. When, when they were together? And how can we recreate that in some way? Segregation was made by white people, and it's like Dr. Clyde Anderson always say, like, black people are the only race that has to choose between integration and segregation. <laughs> we're we're the only race that's given that that choice, quote unquote. Because we have no home, and we're the only group of people in this country without a home. And I would even argue that you know Native, Native Americans. That that's a, that's an, another case that I, I might I would agree that possibly they would have a similar issue. Mm-hmm. But being from Oklahoma, I do have issue with that as we were slaves on their land in Oklahoma. So that's a whole other issue. But for Black people in this country, we don't have a homeland to refer to that accepts us, and we share a common language. We you know, share share a common culture. In this country, our culture is taken and stripped from us. We can't gatekeep anything because our culture is, you know, is is our I think America is a watered down version of Black culture, completely watered down. That's American culture, but you know we don't have a home to refer to. You say people from Mexico coming to to America. I mean, even though they may have this deep oppression, they do have this deep oppression from being in America. They still have their language. They still have their community that they grew up in. And so coming to America now versus 400 years ago, I mean, you have something to refer to when we don't. It's not to play the oppression Olympics at all by any means. It is to say there's a particularity of being black in this country that 
warrant social and social and cultural segregation that benefits us. Everybody does it. Everybody does it when they're going to church. Everybody be real. When you're going to church, it's an all black church for the most part, all white church, especially your denominations. Go to school, you go to a PWI, it's primarily white people, Asian people, depending on, on the level of the prestige. You go to an HBCU, you can say well, we're segregated already. You live on a part of town that's primarily black. Like, come on now. And so for me, to say that that being a segregationist is illogical, it's kind of for me off the wall. And, and people, and everybody, when people get into these spaces, people are fine with it. We love it. We, we desire it. Like, like Asian school, Asian people want to go to schools where there's a lot of Asian. Black people want to go to schools where, where they, they look at the black population. White people want to be around white people. And it's like, and it's not all because of hate. It's not out of hate. You just no. want to go where you're comfortable. Yeah. And I think we need to be somewhere where we're comfortable. I just feel like we don't have enough black space. Dr. Myron used to always talk about how we don't have enough black space to where we can just talk about this type of stuff and not have to worry. Decompress. And not have to worry about somebody coming in and saying, oh, you got to go. It's time to go. Like when we're closing up, you know? We don't we don't have that stuff anymore, bro. And I think that shit is crucial, bro. You know, if we wanna if we wanna build critical thought within the black community, if we wanna get over all the generational trauma that we have, you know, getting over all these inferiority complexes, we need somewhere to actually be and talk about it and develop fucking pride. Yeah. That's that's what it's about, bro. And you know, but but like kinda of switching the top the topic, like before we end this episode, I do wanna talk a little bit about you you going to Emory yeah. next year, like like what, what, what are you most excited for? Hmm. What I'm most excited for, I think, I'm able to put passion to paper, and you and I were talking about that. Yeah. I'm really hungry, bro. Like I'm hungry. hungry you gotta be hungry to read as much as I possibly can. And I'm getting this God's grace. I'm getting paid to just read and sit in the classroom. That is like the greatest gift I think as a black person I could ever have. That's how I'm feeling right now too, bro. You getting, as well, but you're just getting paid thing. to getting paid to learn. Do bro. this, like this payment. Oh my God, it's a blessing, bro. I can't even explain, <laughs> bro. Like I can't, I can't. So for me, bro, I'm super excited. I feel you know very grateful, especially being at a new school. I just I've never gone to school with not you know I, I never went to school with people that weren't black, and so mm-hmm. this is gonna be a new opportunity. For me, um, I'm just really excited to place my feet down and just like immerse myself in everything. It's like the Afro department, I really want to be close with. I want to be close with the religion department. I just want to like all the resources provided. Like I really want to like maximize it so I can like be a conduit to give those resources back. And that's that's what it needs to be, bro. Like us getting to these spaces within our memory. It's where we come from. Where we come from that we still have. That we still indebted to our community. Yeah. People, a lot of black people are scared to, to, to think like that. It's like, oh, I don't, I don't owe them niggas nothing. And it's like, no, it's man. like, bro, like, if we want to go anywhere, bro, it's like, we're going, we got to go together. We got to go together. And if you want to do that shit from like a purpose field standpoint, you know, like a point that that's fulfilling to who you are as a person, it's like, we have to, we got to think about our race, bro. We got to, we got to think the about mindset, our people, bro. bro. It's, a, it's the mindset. Number one, everything else follows through. Every time. It always falls through, bro. I just got to get the mindset right, bro. And I think that people who listen to this podcast are definitely, like, I don't even know what you're going to think it is, bro. But this is definitely one of my one of my most favorite, one of my most favorite episodes, bro. Like, I appreciate having you on, Dean, bro. Man, it's been a blessing and an honor, bro. And just, I'm so proud of what you're about to do with John Hopkins, bro. 
blessing us with your knowledge, bro, your passion. And I say, man, let's let's, let's build. Let's, let's get it. We building. That's why we're here right now, man. This is where it starts, bro. And I can assure y'all, this is not the last time we're going to have Dean on, bro. Like, not at all. We got some fire <laughs> cooking up in the future. So best believe, you know, we, we on here, man. But as long as we always say, you know, as long as y'all show love, we'll stay consistent. Appreciate everybody listening to the, to the whole episode. This was a long one. But... It ain't feel long to me at all. I was enjoying every second of this. Nah, facts. Same here. Like, like, for real. But, hey, man, appreciate anybody who listened, you know. But Black Lotus out. Josiah out. We gone. Sheesh. Oh, man.